Happy New Year. Um, how are the resolutions going so far? Is anybody, is anybody like tapping out already? Like, oh, I, I won't ask you next week. I will just trust that that's going to keep on new mercies every day, like hang in there. So um, anyway, well, we are going to be uh, continuing our series through wisdom this morning, and uh, which to me is just... The, the treasures that are there as we contemplate this, just this idea of wisdom, the, the heart of wisdom, understanding the depths of wisdom, to me, it just keeps revealing treasure after treasure. It just feels like there's so many layers of depth here. And um, hopefully you're enjoying this as we spend time pondering these ideas. And uh, I, I mentioned last week, you know, when, when you think of wisdom, I think oftentimes we make these connections back to the Greeks. They were kind of the ones who really championed wisdom. And um, think of Socrates saying that the unexamined life is not worth living. We talked about that a little bit last week, going, that's probably not totally right. Like, if you're not examining your life, it's still worth it. Like, there's still value there, right? But I think what he's getting at is to say, the riches of life come from examining our lives. It's where gratitude comes in. It's where we understand and really savor the depths and the goodness of life is when we participate in a reflective way of evaluating our days. And we talked last week about Psalm 90, 17. It's a, it's a psalm written by Moses where he says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And uh, I, I love this, that um, I think... When we understand wisdom, especially through more of a Hebrew lens, that, that wisdom tends to be more about the heart than the mind, that there's a, a wholeness to wisdom that is kind of a congruency with our, our head and our heart, that it has to do with our desires and our choices. It has to do with um, how we choose to live each day. It's in the simple things down to what we eat or who we associate with, how we practice and handle money. All of these things, wisdom has got such a pragmatic component to it. And as we talk about this idea as Christians, we're we're talking about living really in the end life as it was meant to be lived. That this is what Jesus was always telling us about is abundant life. And in the kingdom and abundant life, those two to me go so hand in hand How do we live life the way it was meant to be lived? How do we live our lives in congruence with the way it was designed? That God has purposes and plans for each life. Scott Saunders, welcome. (laughs) Way to sneak in. And Jesus, this invitation is constantly being put before us, but being put before us with a level of sobriety to it as well, that... Jesus says, look, I, I'm the way into this life. And that there's this, this gateway into it and this narrow path to be walked. And the truth is, if you walk it, why? Well, because it's hard. Jesus says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And yet the invitation is there before us each day to walk in this way, to walk in a reflective, contemplative way of wisdom. 
And the narrow door, I think part of the reason that we don't walk in, part of the reason we don't fit through the narrow door is we've got all this stuff that we're carrying with us. We accumulate all this baggage, all these treasures that we think are so important, and it turns out oftentimes the way of wisdom is a simplifying of our life. It's laying down things that we don't need. And there's a another Greek philosophical quote that's attributed to Aristotle, I think incorrectly, that says this. <laughs> yeah, that's just for accuracy up there. Um, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. We are what we repeatedly do. Have any of you heard of that quote before? I mean, you kind of, it's suspect because it reads too nicely in English, and that means it's probably not translated from Greek, which means it's probably somebody else's summation of Aristotle. But that sounds like Aristotle. This idea of a habit that is practiced. That wisdom is not just a one-off, or it's not like some big concept that we download it's it's a practice that we participate in it and we do it over and over and over again and i think sometimes when we think of wisdom and we think of discipline it immediately like it goes Ugh, i don't i don't like that idea of discipline right we we love transformation we love the quick fix we love the sort of miracle cure and so often what we're being invited into in Scripture is a journey. It's taking a step and then another step and then another step. And so there's this unavoidable perseverance in wisdom, choosing again and again and again. And as we do, what we see is that our lives are shaped in a certain way. I like how Aristotle calls it excellence. We, we might call it beauty, that wisdom has this beautiful texture to it. Wisdom is not about just simply laying aside things at the door, but it's about choosing the most beautiful things. And I, I like this. You know, I commented on this before. I think when I, first time I went to Health and Balance, um, to, to a chiropractor, I was going, Gary was saying, what do you want, Jeff? And I was like, I want to be free of pain. And he was like, no, 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 think bigger than that, right? Think about surfing. Think about activities you want to be doing. Think about life, how you want to be participating in that. And I thought, oh, that's so helpful to me, right? Because he's going, if you're going to get through this sort of healing, what you need is vision. You need to be envisioning the greater things of life and going after those things. And this is what wisdom promises. Proverbs 16, 16 says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? to get understanding, to be chosen rather than silver. And so Jesus goes, this narrow way leads to life, but it leads to good life. Life as it was meant to be lived. And this is part of what we're kind of musing on during this series on wisdom, is are what are these treasures? What are the promises that it offers? And how do we have vision for those things? How do we understand the depths of what's being offered to us? And the one I want to talk about specifically today is going to sound simple. But the truth is, it offers one of the greatest gifts that we can experience in life. In fact, I maybe even mentioned this a little bit last week. It offers what has been viewed as like the greatest key to happiness in our life. And it's friendship. 
Today I want to talk about the wisdom of friendship, and Scripture has so much to say about friendship. But the truth is we, we often have neglected this. I remember one time Patty and I were going on a date, and uh, Lila said, what are you guys going to do tonight? Meet some new friends? And I was like, no. <laughs> we're just going to go out and be together. Like, we don't want to talk to anybody else. We just want to, like, invest in each other, right? But but Lila, I think, is is on to something, and we understood this, I think, as kids, that that friendship, friendship is where the joy is. Friendship is where we can lose ourselves in the day, where time almost, like, stands still, right? And you think back to that when you were a child, those sweet times where you play just so imaginatively all day and then you like have a sleepover that night and I guess you don't really do sleepovers anymore, but, but we used to, right? And just, I, I think like this sort of unending playfulness. And there's just a tenderness to friendship. But as we go on, I think we become less and less able to invest in this way. We, we become more and more possessive of our time. Friendships become more and more complicated, don't they? It gets harder, harder to set aside that time. It gets lost in the busyness and in the work and in all these things that we find so much purpose in. But we lose friendship. And it's interesting, there's quite a lot being written right now as we're sort of coming out of a pandemic, out of a season of isolation. And people are noticing that... um, as much as we maybe longed for social gatherings, people are not bouncing back like we thought they would. That there was something about that isolation that has created a different sort of habit in us. And the statistic came out saying that a third of people are less socially involved today than they were even in the midst of the pandemic, that it's sort of decreasing. And what's coming with it is an underlying sort of pain. And that pain is loneliness. That pain comes in isolation, but but we're coping with it through further isolation. There was a great article that came out by Arthur Brooks, and I think it was just this week, called How We Learned to Be Lonely. Did anybody read this article? It's, um, well, it's depressing, but um, but interesting. And he says, instead of coming together, emerging evidence suggests that we're in the midst of a long-term crisis of habitual loneliness in which relationships were severed and never reestablished. Many people, perhaps including you, are still wandering alone without the company of friends and loved ones to help rebuild their life. Many of us have simply forgotten how to be friends. And the truth is, like, we're made for that sort of connection, right? This is the one of the best things Brene Brown gave us, is saying, hey, we are hardwired for connection as human beings, that we are fundamentally wired towards this. And yet what happens as we age, and what's happening, I think, even more so now, is that this, this friendship feels maybe too costly, too difficult, too divisive, and so we withdraw from it. David White, uh, the poet, says that a diminishing circle of friends is the first terrible diagnostic of a life in deep trouble. 
A diminishing circle of friends is the first terrible diagnostic of a life in deep trouble. It's an interesting one, right? It should be like a little warning light going as our friendship circles shrink. And I think what I want to do really in talking about wisdom today is cast vision for us because as I think about church, I think in so many ways it is about community and that the skill or the discipline we practice in community is being the type of people that build friendships, build relationships, build trust. Loneliness is this feeling that the human connections that we need are greater than the human connections that we have. It's a quote that I read. The human connections we need in our life are greater than the human connections we have. And I don't know about you, but I've at times been sitting, I mean, even maybe in church, you can sit here amongst all these people and feel lonely. And the truth is, sometimes you can be just one-on-one and loneliness vanishes when you're like really seen, really noticed. How do we create a space where we see each other and notice each other? Where we pay attention to what is going on, where we ask questions and then listen to the heart of the other. And to address this, to really understand this, requires us to to kind of do what we talked about at the start, a, a bit of introspection of our own hearts. How are we doing in this regard? Paying attention to the loneliness in our own lives, noticing it and leaning into it. Because oftentimes what we do when we feel pain like that is cover it with something else. And if I were to guess, I would say I think our world is, is covering the pain of their loneliness with, with anger and division. James Baldwin said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And I think so often we point fingers and try to figure out who's to blame for all of these things when really deep down we just go, ah, I feel alone. This need for connection. And so if we're not careful, we end up pouring ourselves into the wrong things. Or we cope in the wrong ways. Our best friends become Siri or Alexa. We're like, these are the people we talk to, right? And what they give us is what we're longing for. Like, and what's the next Netflix show that I should binge tonight? Um, we, we have this relationship in a way with technology that sort of cre- see? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up, you guys. <laughs> and, and it is, I mean, all of these things are, are sweet gifts. I'm like any of you going, like looking forward to the next series of whatever it is. But, but the truth is what we're longing for is much more than that. Much more than can be given. And I think it's a human thing, actually. It's not the fault of technology that we disengage. It just sort of accelerates that tendency. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, um, the author writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Isn't that a great passage? And it's going, this is why we do church. We, we do church to draw near to each other, to encourage each other, to spur one another on to love and good works. And it's funny, even back then, people were finding church difficult, right? They would show up and they're like, ah, do we really need this? Maybe I'll just listen to the podcast later, you know, or, or I'll read, maybe I'll just read the Bible on my own. Like, thank you, Paul, I'll read your letter when I'm at home instead of joining together in community. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, let us draw together all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's interesting, Jesus would say, this is the sign that you're my disciples when you love each other. Which is kind of surprising to me. Like, I would, I would say, people will know that you're my disciples when you love them, right? When you love others, when you love the stranger. And all of that is true. But it's interesting that Jesus was saying, like, kind of the, the first testimony is just the church being the church. Meaning the church loving each other, building relationship with each other. And why would we attribute that to God? Well, because I think it's so hard. It's so hard to do. That this new church that was forming crossed all sorts of party lines, right? It, it was people from different cultures, from different traditions, of different sects, of different position within society, gathering together around a table. And the truth is that kind of thing doesn't really happen Often it doesn't even happen in the church. And so when we show that kind of love, we're showing what's at the heart of, a go- of the gospel, that it unites hearts together, that it brings diversity into a place of unity. And that's a muscle that we have to work. That's something we have to grow into. That's a narrow road to walk. And I think sometimes we look at friendship and we go, yeah, but I'm... I'm fine without it. I don't need that many friends, right? And I think that that this too is part of what is so special about it, that we have this way of looking at life as like, what are the essential things? What are the things that I cannot do without? When these extra things were seen to be what makes life beautiful. Ancient culture, I think, understood this better than we do. That's kind of Lewis's point in The Four Loves when he talks about friendship. He says it's extra, and as a result of it, it's one of the things that should be cherished the most. It's like one of the deep luxuries of life. And learning to pursue relationship, that's, I think, stands out to me as what really church is all about. I, I used to think that it was just coming to hear a certain speaker or teacher, right? And I would like to think that still has value. <laughs> but the truth is, you guys are probably listening to sermons all week long or listening to a podcast or gleaning all kinds of wonderful information that, that church is not about sermons. It's not about content. It's about connection, kind of at its core. The church being a place where we practice how to love like Christ has loved us. 
And listening to a message, digesting these things is, is good and helpful, but putting it into practice, that's where we really function as the church. And so we do a meal on Sundays to just go, maybe that's the most important part of our worship, right? Is to stick around, to build friendship, to invest in relationship. And we're so excited that we keep seeing new people, new faces each week. And some of you may be thinking, wow, I've found the perfect church. And I'm just going to tell you, like, welcome, you must be brand new. And that's a good feeling, right? You find something new. But guess what? If you stick around long enough, you're going to get disappointed and let down, even maybe hurt by this place. I talked to you last week. I mentioned that uh, little example from Schopenhauer where he says we're all porcupines in the snowstorm. And we huddle together for warmth and go, ouch. We need each other, but it comes with the pokes. But the truth is, this is the way that we grow in love. And I remember reading years ago this book called A Different Drum by Scott Pack. And he he has these four stages of community development. I think I've got that on a slide. Yeah, there we go. So the like, oh my gosh, I found the perfect church. That's... um. Stage one, pseudo community. And it feels great, right? That's where you like talk about sports and weather and everything feels good. You're meeting a lot of new people and you go, wow, I love this place. Followed by stage two, which is chaos, which is where you get poked and disappointed, where you find disagreements, where you're like, oh, this was so good, but gosh, now my feelings kind of got hurt. I don't feel noticed. Somebody said something and it struck me the wrong way. And often what comes after that is this sake of, this stage of emptiness. And Peck would say that's where the opportunity is. That it's in the emptiness where things start getting deeper. That it's from the soil of that place that is birthed true community. And when we read through a book like Proverbs and it talks about friendship, it's going to talk about it through this lens of this greater sense of community. For instance, Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And, and there's a lot of different ways you can take that, and I think that has a lot of layers to it. But the, the fact is that church is a place where often we do our best to speak truth to one another. Sometimes truth isn't what we want to hear. In remaining, persevering in relationships, staying engaged instead of disengaging is some of the greatest work we do in developing our ability to be friends. Most of the time when we hit chaos or emptiness, we're like, time to find a new church, time to, time to find a new friend group, time to like ghost those people on social media, right? You're like, unfriend, unfriend, unfriend. And, um, the invitation here to remain. We have to understand this is the opportunity for us to get what our hearts are craving, which is true intimacy, true love, true connection. David White from the same article I was quoting earlier says, all friendships of any length are based on a continued mutual forgiveness. 
All friendships of any length are based on a continued mutual forgiveness. And that's going to be inevitable in our relationships. But for friendships to endure and for friendships to last, as I was mentioning last week, Arthur Brooks was talking about the thing that distinguished the happy from the unhappy later in life, other than health, was long-term relationships. And the only way you get those is through forgiving, not finding the perfect fit. The only way you get that long-lasting marriage relationship is through continued mutual forgiveness. James, which um, I'm excited for your study, by the way, Chris and Shirley, um, a book filled with wisdom, says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. May we as a church be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, And I love how James is saying, when you do this, this produces the righteousness of God. Anger doesn't. Anger produces the righteousness of man, right? And wisdom is about letting go of that being right. And so we've talked about this, that the underlying characteristics of of wisdom are humility, patience, kindness. This is how we grow in our capacity to love others to become like Christ, to learn to love like Christ. And this proverb, Proverbs 17, 17, if you're going to quote a proverb on friendship, this is probably the one you hear, but it's a little bit ominous. It says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Again, you see the narrow way. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend who loves at all times? Do you have a friend who is born for adversity? I remember a friend of mine saying, you want to know who your best friend is? You just killed somebody. Who's the first person you call? Right, it's kind of helpful, right? Like you're in so much trouble. Like who do you really trust? But what's funny is I think now that's not a good test because I would call this one friend of mine who I think he could probably dispose of a body. (laughs) But he's not the person I'm going to bear my soul to. So it's probably not helpful, but it does get at some of the texture behind that person that you call no matter what when you're at your worst who knows you in all your brokenness and fragility and insecurity. Who's that person that loves you, that shows up for you no matter what the need is. I think Solomon would tell us those are the treasures. Lewis will say in the four loves, when you find friends like that, stay there, right? Don't move too quickly like we need those things. They're the greatest gifts that we have are these deep relationships. I think that's to me one of part of the magic of somebody like C.S. Lewis or Tolkien is they, 
they had these beautiful, deep friendships, right? There's this little group called the Inklings that would meet in this pub and they would share from their heart and they would share poetry and they would share their stories. And, and you can go visit this. Actually, you can't. I think the Eagle and Child just closed during COVID, which is a tragedy. But, um, but, but anyway, but this, you could go into this little space where they would gather and, I remember Patty and I going and visiting that one time and going, oh gosh, it's just like any other pub, right? And yet you go, oh no, it's not. Like there was this sacred gathering there that the power of that space is based on the relationship and what was shared. And I think we have spots like that around here. I think of the upper room upstairs. is like, to me, it feels like it's got that same sort of weight to it. It's a place where there's been hours and hours of prayer and connection. That these are sacred moments, deep moments. And the challenge here for us is not only to to value those deep treasures of friendship or to forgive in order to remain in relationship with people that we've known for a while, but to become the kind of people that love at all times. To become the kind of people that are born for adversity. And I don't know about you, but that, that at first doesn't sound so appealing, does it? Like, oh, if you're in adversity, you should call Jeff. <laughs> right? Like, do we want to go into adversity? Why, why would we go into that place? But I think in a similar way, Jesus is going to say, because that's where the riches are. And Jesus is telling us to follow him into those places. The places where we experience pain and brokenness and the hardship that others are going through. That Jesus is saying that loving somebody, sitting with somebody in that place is part of how you experience abundant life. It's been said that we can only sit with others in their pain to the extent where we're willing to sit in our own. And so this is part of the challenge, right? That to be that sort of friend, to be a friend born for adversity, means we do our own work and sit in that sort of truth, as we've talked about before, sitting in our weeds with God, letting God meet us there in that need, but also letting others in to that place which is scary, and we spend so much of our time putting on an external, we've got this all figured out, when inside there's deep well of sadness there, or loneliness, or isolation. To become a church where that love is seen and felt, we have to be willing to go there, we have to be willing to let other people into that space. And be able to do that well and to do it appropriately, not to just go dump all of our stuff on the person that's like just standing there innocently, right? We, we develop the capacity for this and over time develop the ability to sit with each other in this place. But there's a fullness that comes when we form a community like this. And so much joy. One of the things that I think is the greatest gift about church when we have this place where there is diversity is that you're able to see all these different facets of life and different facets of each other. True friendship is not possessive, right? It welcomes others into that space. I'm giving you a whole lot of Lewis because I was reading through his thing on friendship and I thought, gosh, there's so many good nuggets in there. 
But one of the things he said, and he mentioned this after losing his friend Charles Williams, is he said, what I'm going to miss about Charles is not just Charles, but I'm going to miss that side of Tolkien or Ronald that only Charles brought out. Isn't that interesting? That he's going, when, when we lose somebody, we also lose the, the effect of that person on our community. And I think to flip that a little bit on its head, we go, part of the joy of being a community is we experience not just friendship one-on-one, but we experience a more full understanding of each one of us. There's a greater dynamic. It draws out more of who we are. And the truth is, it, it does the same thing with God. When we come together and we seek God together, we see God not just through our eyes, but the eyes of each other. We see facets of who God is that we never would have noticed on our own. That life gets more full, more colorful, and bigger. When I think about this for my own life, I, I'm aware of how much I have to grow in this. That... um I would like to say, you know, in seminary, they give you the answer key. And then you can just give everybody the answer they're looking for. And, and the truth is, it's not true. I feel like, you know, as I, um, my daughter up at UCI's, most of her classes are taught by TAs, right? They're like teacher's assistants. And I'm like, sometimes I feel like the pastor job is you're like a TA. You're like learning along with the rest, right? And um, so I'm thinking about this week and thinking of a couple situations that were really heavy and um, a couple people who are experiencing pain in our church that I haven't experienced. And so saying the perfect thing or giving the right answer, it's not even there or available. I mean, I will point them to scripture, but really in the end, what I do is I just sit in that place with a friend who is hurting And it's costly, isn't it? When we sit in that place of adversity, that kind of friendship, that kind of relationship, like part of us is going out as we do it. But I think in each of these situations this week, I came away feeling this sense of just holiness in that moment. To just be there and to see another heart, even in the brokenness, laid bare. You feel like you should take your shoes off, right? It's like holy ground. God is there, even in the midst of the adversity. And to be with each other in that place is a sacred thing. It's part of the real life-giving aspects of relationship. So I think what Jesus is saying, which again is so counterintuitive to our way of thinking, but to sit with another in adversity is one of the greatest gifts of life. It's precious. I think of this week too. These are just Jeff's quick little lessons that are like, I'm still processing from this last week, but I had several opportunities this week to engage, and this is none of you, but with people outside that um, I have some brokenness in my relationship with. And I don't know about you, but man, when I feel offended, that guard comes up quick, doesn't it? my wall, my protection. And in each of these cases was 
this opportunity to lower some of those defenses. And I feel the resistance inside of me. And I feel the justification and the yeah buts, you know. And I see God just saying, Jeff, forgive and forgive and forgive. And thinking about that and the difficulty of my own letting go, when we do practice grace and forgiveness, there's a lightness that comes, isn't there? Like, oh, that thing I was holding on to, I just didn't need to hold on to. I think this is some of the life-giving, narrow way aspect of wise relationship, wise friendship. To live in that place of grace is to lay down things that we're holding on to that we just don't need to carry anymore. But I was tired from it. So I was sitting with my spiritual director and I was like, Oh, like, how do I get filled back up? Like, I need to get filled back up. What's the answer to this when you're living in a place where it feels like you're walking in a path where there's a lot of adversity? And my director wisely said, well, what's God telling you? Which is the right answer, right? I'm like, no, no, you tell me. What is God telling you? And so I left there thinking, God, what are you telling me? How do you fill us back up? And right after that, there was a moment where there was a deep need in our church. And somebody stepped in and said, hey, I want to take care of that. And I was able to like just sit there and help make a little connection there. Just a simple little thing. And I thought, oh, the joy that comes from watching the church be the church. From getting to watch you guys love each other and care for each other. That friend in adversity that comes and brings encouragement. And I thought, oh my gosh, that joy, right? There's the richness of that. The, the way of wisdom is teaching us to be these people that are gracious, that are forgiving, that are generous. And Jesus is saying this is the way of joy. And that joy is your strength. That joy gives you the capacity to sit with others in suffering. To love at all times. And again, this is a muscle that we exercise. We practice this. None of us is, of us is expected to be good at this right off the bat. But we walk in this way. That this way is what we repeatedly do. And to get glimpses of this, I think that it just, it delights God's heart. He's going, this is the way. Walk in it. That the wisdom of pursuing friendship leads us into these sacred spaces with each other. And we don't get to have one without the other, right? That when we avoid the pain, we miss out on the joy that this paradox but also this invitation is to hold both of these things at once and that there's enough. Paul says this in Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. 
I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And that's such, to me, a great window of this. And Paul goes, look, I'm laying my life down because that's what Jesus did for me. And then that's how I respond. And as it does, it creates in us this maturity like Christ. And we do it with the strength and the power that Christ has done within our own hearts and lives. And I think it's so powerful and so mysterious that it says in some way that this, um, how does he say it? It fulfills, it fills up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. And that's not to say there was anything missing from the afflictions of Christ or what he endured, but to say what we do is we make this love manifest. And it begins with our relationships with each other, pouring into each other, pouring out to each other, and allowing others to do the same for us, to minister to us when we're hurting, and to sit with them in their weeds. And my heart is for us as a church that we would continue to just go deeper and deeper and deeper into this, that we would become wise in our friendships that we would build that sort of love and maturity that Christ is inviting us to. As always, I have some questions for going deeper for you guys to ponder and consider. And the first one is, who are the friends that I treasure most deeply? I'm not saying who is the person you would go to if you killed somebody. Um, I think we've decided that's probably not the most helpful. But But who is it that you treasure most deeply? And think about what is it, what it is that makes them so special. And take a moment this week and consider maybe writing one or more of them a note of gratitude. That part of that reflection is just a way for you to savor that friendship. But also maybe a way of recognizing how much they mean to you. Number two. Where do I find myself withdrawing or withholding friendship from others? Where do I need to grow? How is God desiring to increase my capacity to love? And God is after that in us, this way of enlarging our hearts. Noticing that place where we resist and softening, maybe little simple steps, little acts of forgiveness, little gestures of patience or kindness. How is God using that to increase your capacity to love? And lastly, how might I get more involved here at church? And and thinking about that, this is an opportunity for us. I, I really think this year, as I look kind of ahead, I think becoming a community that participates together, where we're pouring that energy into each other. Tiffany's my inspiration for this, by the way. I, I love, I love how you just create community so beautifully. And, and I think 
Those simple gestures are invitations to sacred space. If you build a friendship here or make a connection, invite that person out to coffee. Get to know each other better, but develop relationships here within the church and sink those roots here. In closing, my prayer for us this year is that we may press into the work that God is doing in us, becoming wise. May we love others with the love and grace that we have received from him. May we persevere in love that we as a church might be a manifestation of his divine love to each other and to our community and that it would shine brightly to this world, a light of invitation to the hope of the gospel. Amen. Would you stand with me? Thank you guys for being here. Again, stick around, get to know somebody. We've got some good food out there for you to eat. But um, what a pleasure it is to be on this journey with all of you. I just think it's a narrow road, but we get to invite a lot of people to this journey and travel together. So what a joy to be a church with you all. I pray as you go that God would bless you and keep you, that he would make his face shine on you and be gracious to you, that he would lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. God bless you guys.